0: Okay, so what I propose is that. My God, you listen, look at me. I'm afraid you're terrorized. That's what you want. <laughs> <right>? <laughs> sorry? Not very helpful. Yeah, thank you. Because I thought, I thought it's cool. It looks like it. But I feel bad, my God. Why do you have to do this? <laughs> I'm <it? laughs> I mean, I mean, like sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> No, but you know, I am for slavery, but for honest, I am a fascist, that like, you know, slaves should be treated nicely. You, you should beat them, but only when it's really necessary. And you should beat slaves in such a way that you don't leave traces and so on, you know. Like I'm a war on, like once I had a wonderful conversation with Giorgio Agamben, And I did think something, it was wonderful. Because, you know, liberals totally misunderstand stand here. No, I'm serious. Uh, they think that the point of a gunman's homo and so on is Judith Butler here <coughs> misunderstands him in a liberal way, that the point is homo sac- homini, whatever, sac- are those who are, you know, not fully integrated outsiders living in this grey area, not in and then the point is to render them visible, you know to speak for them, but Agamben, of course, he is a polite guy, he doesn't want to talk about this publicly to create enemies. But privately once he exploded with this. He said, he told me, no, this is liberal topic. This, you know, there are some marginals whose word is not heard enough and we should open the space that everyone is integrated. That's not his point at all. His point is a much more pessimist one. His point is simply that with this new postmodern geopolitics, we are all sucker, That uh, this emergency state logic is more and more pervading our daily life and is in a way uh, let me put it like this here Agamben belongs to that pessimist Marxist line I don't even agree with you of, for example, Adorno and Horkheimer who I really think this is a kind of a leftist bad conscience. You know, a leftist had to be a pessimist, short term, in the sense of we are living in horrible times. Okay, but till five, ten years ago, we had relative prosperity. So the big sport of the leftist was to prove how, apparently, it may appear that we live in uh, prosperity. But really we are so manipulated that it's worse than... You know, to convince you how? If you think you are leading a nice life, it's just you are totally brainwashed. And I'm, you know, coming from real socialism, from communist countries where, fuck it, you know what's oppression, you know? I felt like the high point of stupidity is I remember when I was very young, early 70s, in Europe, and the United states, I debated with some American leftist political situation and then somebody mentioned Gulag. And a guy from, of course, Berkeley at that point, San Francisco, told us seriously something like, you complain about Gulag, but at least it's Gulag. There just some people. You know that San Francisco, the entire city is one big consumerist Gulag or kind of, know. I mean, it sounds deep, but it doesn't work. It's not as simple as that. So what I'm saying is that, back to Agamben, that and, you know, it's, it's the same with uh, Adorno-Horkheimer. Their idea is precisely our, as long as they were relatively successful consumerist societies, are approaching a certain... Here they were, that's the irony, very close to Heidegger, even if they rejected Heidegger. You know, one of the famous attacks from Heidegger is... Uh, Adorno's jargon, der identity, kind of the jargon of authenticity. But you know, this idea that even if it appears welfare, blah, 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 at a deeper sense, okay, Marcuse called this one dimensional man world, uh, Adorno and Horkheimer called this verwaltete Welt, usually it's translated as administered world. So the, uh, the idea is that we are approaching a kind of a... Even Badiou, up to a point, at least we did. In Badiou's term, this would have been the reduction of subjectivity to hedonist human-animal consumption. The the idea is that even if we are doing relatively well materially, we are approaching a certain zero level where we are basically gradually deprived of our humanity. We don't even uh, notice it so on and so on. No. We can talk maybe afternoon or later after we go through theory about this political aspect or maybe before I I will I will I'm just afraid I need some time to for the courage to confront you. Uh, because let me mention to you one text maybe you get it on 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 the on the web already for free. I think you do. In New Left Review about two, three months ago. I think it's no longer the last issue the guy called T.J. Clark. Maybe you know him, he's the art historian and also some kind of a leftist, but he is, well, as I like to put it, not a complete idiot. And this doesn't mean the time, I mean, there are two kinds of people. People who are complete
1: idiots and people who are not complete idiots. There is no other, so exactly. So, okay, uh, you know where he began? Oh, okay, uh, do you know, he
0: did a wonderful reading, and I refer to it in my big fat book on, on, uh, on uh, Jean-Louis David, The Death of Marat, you know that painting? Yes. As the first modernist painting. And this is what I like. He makes a simple observation, and as far as I know, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I am asking around, did anyone already of art historians and so on, not only noticed it, but noticed the meaning of it. Maybe, how weird this image is. You know how does it look? It's a painting like this. The lower half, even a little bit less, you know it's the famous one. Marat in the bath, dying, the he's hand with pen, and then the beginning of some stupid <laughs> declaration or, or whatever. You know what is all here? Nothing Darkness. It's wonderful, no? And uh, my idea, the way I did it, do it in my third book, is that this is the first of the black squares and so on. No, you blow into this and you get uh, and you get not Kandinsky, sorry, Malevich, no. And so no, because you know why I think it's so wonderful? Because uh, in a way, even for ordinary people, revolutionary activity is seen as something which is not just happy dreaming, but has a terrifying anxiety dimension. Like Who know what will come? You cannot but read this as some kind of, you know, we can do heroic deeds, but against the background of some dark abyss, who knows what will be. And I even in my book try to imagine, uh, I try to imagine, a kind of a really totalitarian version of this painting. And it's easy to imagine. It would have been exactly the same painting, just as in a cartoon, that balloon with works. Here, instead of a void, the painter would have painted something like what was Marat thinking, his vision, and something like, you know, the revolutionary kids. Happy French people dancing in freedom and so on, like the vision, you know. And I really think that this is the space of his thoughts, of, uh, I mean, of, uh, of Maravich is precisely the void. You know, the painting resists that pseudo-revolutionary bullshit, she is dying, but she knows that his death will be a small contribution to French people finally enjoy freedom and so on and so on. Even, I even, I didn't do this in that text, or oh, I did, I forgot, I read the right one. but I'm even, and here we come to theory, I'm even tempted to go a little bit further and now we are going into theory and uh, claim that the uh, uh, this part functions how, this dark part? Of course, you can read it in a naive way, and uh, the history of this painting is well known. First, I must tell you, this is why I still like Jacobins. What are you saying? I, I, I'm i so vulgar, well, you know. Hey, you, slave. <laughs> slave, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> what were you saying? You know that's was my dream? I'm so dirty. You did something like this. You know, why I say that I, am saying such stupid things that (laughs) I This (laughs) is, you know, slaves' rebellion. Now now, 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 I'm no longer a human slave owner. (laughs) Sorry. But what I want to say is that uh, 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 if there is the, the crucial point of modern ontology, it's the idea of, as I repeat all the time, of incomplete universe. You know, this idea that reality is not fully ontologically constructed, that the world is not fully out there. So again, what do you mean by this, Although, of course, as we know from history, because, and again, sorry, this is what I uh, uh, admire with uh, Jacobins. It's obviously a very dark painting. And still, it became an official painting, you know. It was carried around Paris streets, mythic, but isn't it this a nice sign of revolutionaries that, you know, when in their... This is a propaganda painting, but without any cheap optimism that we associate with propaganda, it's darkness, the message is we are walking on the edge of abyss. And which is why Although they are even too easy for uh, too soft for Alain Vadieu, I am also like him uh, uh, for Jacobins. They were there are some letters very mysterious exchanged between Saint Just and Robespierre, which are for me maybe the most tragic political letters. But of such an ethical, namely. You know the standard Marxist theory, which is up to a point true, that in the course of French Revolution, because of its inner logic, it's similar to Roman Empire, it wasn't just that Julius Caesar was a bad guy, but there was a historical tendency towards empire. And the same in France. And what is so immensely, I almost cried, uh, otherwise, I cry only a big melodramas, but this is my private secret. I may appear to say everything. One question I don't answer is with which movies I was crying. And, uh, it's that uh, it's so tragic. They both were clearly aware of this. People's reign is over, a new. Empire, whatever, authoritarian rule will come. And, their herald, and they had a choice. Some of the people around them said, okay, fuck it, let's ask them to grab a you know. And no, they said, they decided consciously, we prefer to lose our heads than to do this step. It's very tragic, you know. They consciously, they knew basically that they will lose. Because remember how Remember the Thermidor? How Jacobins lost? It was my God! You don't you know how they lost? They were voted out of office in Assemblée Nationale. I'm sorry to tell you, but true totalitarian leader, you don't get rid of him like that. No, you don't get rid of Stalin by proposing in Soviet People's Congress to vote against. No, so uh, uh, this is and even you know which is. Another of these tragic documents. Here I differ a little bit from Badiou, for Badiou thinks they should have made a coup d'etat or whatever, Jacobins. You know how it went? They were voted out and then they took refugees, the hardline revolutionaries, uh, that is to say, Robespierre Saint-Just in Hotel de Ville in the City Hall in Paris. And there, some radical supporters of Jacobins tried to push Robespierre to sign an appeal to the people directly. Overthrow parliament, let the people introduce a direct dictatorship, take power. And it's one of the most beautiful documents. Although the right-wingers, but it's proven that it's wrong. The right-wingers have their own reading. Uh, It's beautiful. Maybe because it's so beautiful, you no longer can see it uh, that in Catrien, in that uh, Jewish part, Le Marais, you have the Museum of Paris, and I was so sad. It was there till recently, two, three years ago, they removed it. That very document, and you have raw best and then stopped. But you started to sign it, and then he said, no, I'm for legal order, democracy, I cannot do it. And he knew this means his death, you know. Uh, the the right-wing myth is that, uh, is that something simply interrupted him, whatever. Right-wingers are really easy here, you know. They, they don't want to... Because uh, Robespierre was such a tragic figure. You know what he was doing uh, in uh, days before that Thermidor meeting where they ousted him? No police arrests and so on. He was... He, this was the great naivety. He thought, one big speech by me and we will win. And he was seen for hours walking around Paris alone. And everyone was just uh, think, oh, what is he thinking, what will be the next <laughs> speech, and so on. No, there was some uh, tragic greatness in these guys, no? Even in early Lenin, you can find this some data in my Lenin introduction, you know, there was an attack on Lenin in 1918. How did it happen? It's unimaginable. You know how it happened? Lenin alone with his private chauffeur, alone in an open car, approached Kremlin. There he saw some women debating and the women started to shout at him, hey you, you promised us freedom now, we don't even have enough to eat, blah, blah. Lenin stepped out, and started to debate with them. And then one woman shot him, and then it was total chaos. A guard shouted at Kremlin. Lenin's wife, Nadezhda Krupskaya, came and said, my God, what to do? Then she said to the guard, listen, there is a store around the corner there where I heard they got some lemons from the south go there and buy some lemons, maybe this, you know, it's incredible, <laughs> or you know what happened once, this is demonstrated to Lenin in 1919. He went again with his chauffeur to, in the evening, to give a speech at some high school at the end of the year and on the road in suburb empty, some uh, three small guy bandits stopped the car and threw them out, they didn't know who he is, chauffeur and Lenin, and stole the car, so the two of them then had to walk for half an hour to a police station, claiming, can you phone to Kremlin, and the point is that those policemen didn't know them and said, well, you are Leonard, fuck <laughs> off. It was still possible for this to happen, and it's only in 22-3 that the Soviet state that we all like and love, you know, where things like this cannot any longer happen emerged. So again, but let's not. Okay, let's not get lost here. Let's go back to that painting. This was just a small celebration of authentic revolutions and so on. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, although you can uh, say that the picture, the painting, David, the death of Marat, is realistic, uh, because it's well known what he meant, within realist logic, that upper dark part to be. It's the wall. It's simply... She wanted to emphasize the loneliness of Marat and how she lived in a modest apartment where the wall... uh, He even... Here, things become mysterious, because... at the same time, we know that the wall behind on that wall was not as as sketchy, just dark with scratches, that it was kind of a, how, how do you call it, that stuff with flower is that Wallpaper. Called. Sorry? Wallpaper. Yeah, the, there was wallpaper, more wallpaper there. So but what I want to say is this. I think modernism begins when, as if you look at the world as an unfinished world, you know, like you have realist painting here, here, but it is as if Parts of the painting are unfinished, you know. The way you phenomenologically experience the painting, it's as if these are simply just, how do you call it, when the painter, before doing it, just makes subject, it's just a chaotic background, as it were. And the idea is that, although maybe he wasn't fully aware, but it's clear that he was uh, playing with this. So again, The idea being that you have a certain structure of reality. But this is not all. There is some, the way I call it in my books, chaotic, pre-ontological, not even reality. You know? Like, you have to have... You know where I had a very naive... This is total naivety. But I had a wonderful experience. Uh, I hate these warm countries and so on where you dance and so on. Like I think that that in in uh, in uh, Brazil, I think that Bahia should be bombed. People are lazy there, dance. I like Sao Paulo, dirty city, work and so on. No, uh, but uh, what there are two dream country signs for me, the very south. Of uh, Tierra del Fuego, you no know, land of fire, the very south of Argentina, or if you go to the opposite end, uh, uh, Iceland. Where are you in Iceland? Not just Reykjavik, but you should go around. And when I went there, my idea, I almost had a kind of a metaphysical epiphany. It's as if, and then I was so glad to learn from my Iceland friends that they, in their mythology, already play with this that God didn't fully finish the job of creation in Iceland. You know, because if you go to some of the countryside, there is something growing green, but it is this kind of chaotic moss, it looks from our naive experience that it's not yet, it's at the northern part, you know, as if God was just playing with some, uh, with some plant life, but didn't yet fully finish creation, no? That's why, again, I cannot resist it. if. I were to choose a place to live independently of France and so on, it would have been somewhere to the northeast east of, uh, of uh, Reykjavik, out there in Iceland. Okay, now let's go on. Why is this important? Uh, t- because, uh, uh, now I will make a crazy jump. Uh, first, let's go on with paintings. Can I just yes. ask you something quickly. Of, of course.
1: So why don't why don't you include the lack or like the not all as part of like reality itself? I do. Yeah. you do. I do. When you say bogus that reality uh, is not fully ontologically constructed, why isn't the li- you know what I mean? Uh, why is it
0: dead?
1: Like why isn't it included? Because like you, you seem to be making a distinction between the pre-ontological yeah. and the fully constituted reality, right? Uh, so like you not, everything you the is, not everything guy. out there is reality. Right? You the,
0: who is the shedding guy? Yeah. It's, it's you. It's you, the selling guy. The guy, I uh, will be evil, not at you and me, the guy between Fichte and Hegel, who thought he is a good doctor also, and you know, he took over from Schlegel, Carolina Schlegel, this yeah. revolutionary beauty, the fan fatale of German Romanticism, and she was ill, and he, Schelling, cured her, tried to cure her, so she died in it. <laughs> That's our Shelling, you know. But she was good. She was to the end for Jacobins. As long as she was there, Shelling was a leftist. Then he turned. <laughs> no, 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 this is, I have a book on her. This is proof. Okay, but let's go on. I'm saying this because, You know that I took this from Schelling. I did a book on Schelling. In Schelling you have this idea that you have existence, which means established world of reality, and then you have this pre-ontological, literally, pre-logos chaos. I mean, if you want, poetically, I hope we agree, the most beautiful shattering, this half-mystical, cosmological speculation, I think is Selling's Welt alter ages of the world. I mean, this is breathtaking. Already at the beginning, Schelling says, I don't. The point is not to see how the world was at the beginning. The point is to see what happened before the beginning. This is really an ingenious point. Schelling quotes the Bible. You know that the bad guy. If you ask me, the bad guy is John of the four Gospels. John is the first anti-Semitic, the first racist, the first mystic, the first Gnostic. He screws it up. And he begins with, uh, with, uh, at the beginning was Logos, the world. Referring to this, said, no, what interests me is what was there before the beginning. By beginning, he means this divine. So, why did God create the world? And he goes into this. This reminds me, I'm sorry if I repeat myself, but I forgot the title. I think it's something like the word. A wonderful, very short, I love that, these science fiction stories, which are paradoxes. So, one page and a half, science fiction story. Oh, so Solution. Sorry? Yeah, 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 Where? All of it is just a rambling of a confused guy. Should I do it? I'm too tired, fuck it, I don't want, I don't want what to do, blah, blah, blah. And then at the end he says, OK, let's do it. Let it be like for what? The point is, you get it that it was God's confused, this is a very Schellingian idea, you know. Schelling goes then into this wonderful concept of divine madness, a piece of divine drives, basically, I put it, of course, with a certain irony, but literally it's true. As you must know, selling idea is that, I'm very evil here, God created the world, this was what we call in psychiatry, this labor, work therapy, you know, when they tell you do some work and (laughs) then you can, you know that. Literally, God created the world, pronounced the world, to to save himself from his own madness. And uh, what I want to say here is that, Schering, then, this is his typical genius, evokes a typical to, he says, he asks Schelling, how should we understand this God-pronounced a word? And he said, this is Schelling at his strongest. When he's dealing with the highest speculative point, you know, but then all of a sudden he clarifies it with an everyday situation. He says, isn't it often that, again, we are confused, we try to understand, and then, All of a sudden, you find the right word. And he said that creation should be conceived like that. It's not out of nothing. And here, even my Jewish friends are telling me that Schelling was right. Do you know that uh, uh, the first thing, every good, every guy who really knows Talmud and all the bullshit will tell you, that uh, the first mystery, is that uh, Elohim or what? The word in the Bible which is used for God is plural. It's singular, plural, whatever. And this also explains this strange hint, you know, when God says, let's create Adam on our image. He speaks in plural. He says, let's create someone like us. Like it's this also explains that obscene, but for me it's the greatest, uh, obscene, sin, the beginning of the book of Job, you know, when God, basically God had a nice dinner with devil, and then in the conversation, cognac after dinner, they debate, are people faithful to me, blah, 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 and they made the bed, no? This is all part of this, idea, and this is what I say then to annoy my Jewish friends, I tell them, is to tell them, of course, you are not truly uh, monotheist. My Lacanian paradox would have been, Jewish God is still one which is many. To get real one, you need three. Or as Alain would have said, one has to be marked, repeated. You know, this is what Alain has it very nicely, that one is not the beginning. You don't begin with one. What you have at the beginning is zero and multiplicity. Multiplicity, which shouldn't be translated as uh, hard negri multitude, no? So, again, let's go on. Uh, again, you find already in Schelling this idea of uh, that our reality is not simply things are like that. It's a kind of a fragile construction based on or emerging out of some kind of a pre-ontological chaos. You know, it's as if here and there, and this is also the best theory of evil. It's very deep. In Talmud, somebody told me that uh, the origin of evil, isn't it a beautiful dream? Now you will tell me this is bullshit. Of course, I don't believe in it. I'm totally uh, an atheist. But I think that uh, we can translate all this in very materialist term of the real, symbolic, structuring of the real. You know what's the most radical uh, Talmud ontology? Two features. The one is that before our world, God made other universes, but they were a failure, so God destroyed them, erased them. But he was not careful enough, not completely. And that evil are the remainders of the previous destroyed world, words. I love this, how, what is obviously crazy theology, maybe even nonsense, how useful it can be, for example, maybe you know it, I'm sorry, I repeated another example, which is my favorite one, because Mayasu, can tell Meyasu, you know, after finitude, he uh, refers to it, but I think he is too dismissive. Do you know this debate? I don't know, maybe some of you know who he is, Uh, Namely, after Darwin, already in 1860, immediately after the publication of uh, Origins of Species, you know that there were some problems for Christians. Because they had this problem, some honest theologists. A, it's clear we totally believe Bible has to be true. They were right, they didn't buy this bullshit, oh, Bible is just a mythic condensation of early stages of human, no, they said, my God, it's God's work, don't mess, it's true, okay. And then, I like this, this is British sense, like this is uh, Monty Python of humor. They uh, even, and the charm is that this is not a joke. One theologist even proposed that God created the world minus 4021 at 9 in the morning. And I like this idea. God takes breakfast, okay. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Okay, so uh, the problem was, how to combine this with obvious fact? They admitted it, that you cannot play with Darwin. He really demonstrated, and all the proofs, fossils and so on, that the universe, even on Earth, is at least millions of years. I hope you know the solution, it's an ingenious one. How to bring these two together. Ah, a theological friend of Darwin found the mega solution. Of course, God cannot lie, so it's true, our world was created, 4,200, blah, blah, blah. To give us an illusion of openness, God directly created fossils. You know, it's, it's like on movie sets, you know, where you really do it in a studio set, but you paint on the background, you know, the very or whatever, that God did the same thing at a temporal level. And I find this an ingenious idea, why? Don't be afraid, I'm not a fundamentalist, not, I don't believe in this. What I think is that, isn't this the best metaphor you can imagine for ideology? This simply, you know, retroactive, how do you you call it, inventing the past or whatever. We are doing it all the time. Do you know that the big old now, he's still alive because he forgot to die, he's so old, Eric Hobsbawm, uh, he published some 10-15 years ago with Cambridge University Press, I think, a wonderful volume, collective work, is it Inventing the Past or something like that, where they go systematically through all of it, for example, the nice example, you know how we identified Scottish dresses today with that kilt, the skirt for men, and so on. Well, late 19th century we do? Scottish revival. There was something similar to it earlier, but absolutely not the same. Like most of what we perceive as ancient history, it was reinvented, and so on and so on. So again, I think, and I even think that this is not ideology in bad sense. I, there is a whole chapter on this in my book, you can read there, how, uh, what fascinated me, this is the idea that I want to give to you of this ontological openness of reality. I always quote this Borges uh, line, which is famous about Kafka, you must know it, that all uh, with, every writer has a, how do you call it, the ones he plug predecessors, eyes, predecessors, forerunners. But a, a truly great writer creates retroactively. His for, and he gives the example of Kafka, no? The idea is that, of course, we know who were the predecessors of Kafka. Name them Edgar Lampot, Dostoevsky, William Blake, blah, blah. But he says, at the same time, Kafka has already to be here to see that dimension in them. Now you will say, "Okay, what's the big deal? This simply means, from today's perspective, we read them in a different way. It's not as simple as that. Why not? Because this would still have implied that they were fully what they were, and now, from our totality, we read them non-authentically, in a different way. Like, okay, the greatest master here, of course, is Saint Paul, which is why I like him, like Alain, but you, you know. It's clear that Jesus Christ in himself was just a stupid, confused loser. And it's absolutely clear that uh, it was a typical situation of what Lacan means by but it's nonetheless authentic, I'm not making fun, as de Capiton, you know, in the sense of a quilting point, where you add a signifier and Everything retroactively changes. The ge- Although there are some hints, redemption, blah, 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 but as we all know, the death of Christ was experienced as a mega trauma, failure. And the genius of Paul was to, as it were, re read, reinterpret failure as the ultimate triumph. Okay, so, uh, but what does this mean? Again, uh, I also quote here of, you must know it. The idea I'm referring to here is this idea from some French historian, André Monglant, who knows him, the point is that he was quoted by Walter Benjamin. You know, where he says these are famous lines, that uh, often we have historical phenomena, like works of art, whatever, which are like, it's a nice technological metaphor, shots on a film you take in the old-fashioned camera where you take shots but only in the future the developers how do you call them for that film will be so only in the future we will be able to read it and okay benjamin says many works of art uh, work like that and so on and so on and i agree it's literally true for example no i didn't use this in this book of mine but I forgot, for example, in Shakespeare, I mean, I'm sorry that I'm very traditional here, but Shakespeare was a genius, I claim, you know, you find so many passages in him, which are as if, once I wasn't tempted to say as a kind of a theoretical irony joke, I wanted to write a text proving in detail which of Lacan's seminars Shakespeare was reading, (laughs) you know, like the (laughs) is there. He was reading, Ethics of Psychoanalysis was my favorite at that point. Uh, uh, Richard, not the third, the guy who, uh, uh, the evil king, you know, kingdom for a course. I totally buy historical uh, revisionists. He was really a good guy. It's all Tudor plot. You know, Tudors took over after, and because Tudors were the true bandits, and to legitimize their rule, They killed everyone around and invented histories. Okay, but Richard II, the guy who got more and more hysterical and uh, at the end he's liquidated, uh, uh, it's breathtaking. How? And you know, when Lacan says that uh, signifier uses this mysterious expression which is a very precise one, signifier can become a sign of love, not signifier. And he means something very precise. We don't have time to go into it, because uh, this is one of nice things for me with Lacan. The early, yes, immediately, just to finish. The early Lacan was, to put it bluntly, against love for desire. The idea is desire, paradox, abyss of desire is authentic, and love is basically an imaginary narcissistic as I put it, gentrification, control, downplaying of desire. In love, in other words, love is constitutively narcissistic. You like your mirror image, whatever, your own and so on and so on. But then, all of a sudden, and precisely beginning with seminar 11 and later when the topic of the real, the drive, enters, love becomes more authentic than desire. As he puts it Love is the way drive, in its brutality, can be included into the symbolic order, so there is the sign of love. Okay, listen at the final monologue before he is killed. At the very end of Shakespeare's Richard II, it's like Lacombe put into poetry, you know, with precisely this expression, music as a sign of love. Okay, we don't have time to go into it, but let's go back. So, what I want to say is that, OK, you, and then. Yeah, Just really briefly. Um, I was just curious. Uh, I thought I was taking the part where you we were talking about Kafka. Yeah. That comes out of the discussion we have on the vanishing mediator, correct? Already? The, n- not, no, vanishing mediator is in my early, early book, for they know not what they do, no? Right. But I do it here. I don't know. OK, I repeat it so often that it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> but, but just out of curiosity, I was wondering, if you're going to continue on that line, if you could explain the difference between the vanishing mediator and the pond, right? if there is like a oh my god that's a tough question and uh, okay, maybe it would been yeah, totally yeah, yeah. I would like at some point in the future uh, because uh, uh, I agree with your question if its implication is that we shouldn't simply identify the group because the obvious solution would have been the that is straight to say that the mediator vanishes precisely because a preku it is. In other words, to put it ironically, we are all Stalinists, if we want it or no. We are all, you know, like all history is like Stalin's images where Trotsky disappears or whatever, you know. We but it's more, uh, uh, it's I, I think it's more complex because first the problem is not only the past, it's, it's the future also. Okay, but I don't go into it now, sorry. Let me go on with this one. Uh, you know, again, it's not enough to say simply let's talk about William Blake as influence on Kafka. Of course, there was William Blake the way he really was, a different con- historical constellation meaning, and then Kafka reappropriated. I mean, did something to Blake. No, 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 the point is that Blake should be read as that film, you know. We we are not talking about mythology, about mystic. It's not that Blake was from the future. It's Blake was like that painting by David. It was open. It was not fully contextualized. This is why I claim that a, a proper material is history. It's not, is never this simple historicizing contextualization. Like, if you look at the thing fully in its context, you can really understand it. Our answer should be no. Because precisely, no context is full. Every historical constellation is incomplete, open. Okay, uh, let me go on here now. Uh, In literature, okay, we find this openness and so on. Uh, I quote a lot in my book, I have a whole chapter on it. If you read French a little bit, but some of his books are translated. There is a wonderful French guy, I love him, Uh, Pierre Bayard, B-A-Y-A-R-D. Pierre Bayard, who is, is kind of the best of European intellectuals. He's not a specialist, but just... A wonderful essayist made. Okay. Uh, he started with a couple of incredibly brilliant books, although just exercises in practical jokes, but it's more. He took a couple of detailed analysis, and it's not done as a joke. A couple of so convincing, I think he's simply right, a couple of big classical detective novels claiming that the wrong guy is identified as culprit. (laughs) And, for example, his most famous case is, you know, one of, don't underestimate, I did it a lot of time, Agatha Christie. She did have a tremendous narrative imagination of playing out all variations. For example, what are the variations? For example, you know the story of murder on the Orient Express? You know what's the solution there? You have a group of aspects. Who is the killer? All of them. But the price you pay, because by definition, the whole community cannot be wrong. This would be too Marxist, no. The only solution, quite logically, is then the true criminal must be the murdered one. And that the murder was justified. That's the version there. Then you find in murder on the news, N e w s. You look know, for these city side streets, whatever the is. I think these round streets in England, no? But no? uh, it's, you know, it's really an ingenious story because uh, the standard topic is murder mask as suicide. You know, you kill someone, then you plant a suicide letter, whatever, to be very primitive. You wipe your fingerprints from the gun, you press his hand, blah, blah, blah. Here, It's the opposite. It's a murder. But the solution of Poirot is that it really was a suicide. It's a very simple solution. A guy was desperate, killed himself, his wife, or who hated another woman who was the mistress of this guy. And she just found the body and manipulated it, the suicide, so that it looked like Murder. Or, I mean, she really was a genius at this level of, again, or one, murder is getting crazy, whatever. It's a wonderful future analysis, you know. Poirot comes to a, this typical big party in English countryside and deduces that a guy is planning to kill someone. So that this final confrontation is not, you know, this theatrical moment at the end of Agatha Christie novels, all. The group of suspects are gathered and then, no, he confronts alone the future murderer and convinced him not to do it, you know. Mm-hmm. So again, you must know it. The other legend here is uh, the murder of Roger Eckroyd And that b- modernist bullshitter, Edmund Wilson, wrote a legendary essay, Who Cares Who Killed Roger Eckroyd claiming, fuck it, we are no longer in these classical detective novels, who cares? Ah, 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 it's more complex. Why? First, there is something so mysterious about how detective novels really work. Namely, uh, you know what gave me to think here? Uh, I'm not trying to convince you to read them, because sorry, to watch them, because you feel, how with it? They are outdated today. They, I'm talking about uh, Colombo, you know, mm. even series, no? Uh, unfortunately, I must tell you, they no longer work today. They didn't survive. But still, when I was young, when I first watched them, uh, I liked their two things. This was a great invention. If you heard about them, you must know what they are. What is the specific trick of Colombo series? First, that the problem is not who done it. You remember how it's typical Colombo story. You see the situation of murder, you see the murder everything, then Colombo comes and so it's not who done it, but it's purely semiotic problem. You have two realities, the superficial reality and what really happened. And the whole point is how Colombo will both levels are fully known to you. The point is just how to link the two. And this is correct, which is why I think it's wrong, this idea, you are reading a detective novel and a friend can ruin your pleasure if he tells you, oh, I will tell you who did it. No, if you really like detective novels, this will not in the least ruin your pleasure. Because the trick is not who did it, but purely logic and deduction, how you, what was the symptom, what was the so-called clue to put it in? Even Lacanian, or structuralist terms, the doubly inscribed signifier. You know, something which can function as part of ordinary reality, but if you read it properly, works in a, Okay, so what I'm saying is that this was one great element in Columbo. Second one, even more mysterious. If you watched any Columbo, did you notice something very mysterious? totally irrational from the standpoint of ordinary logic. Okay, after the murder, police comes, Colombo comes there to the house where the murder, whatever, and in a very mysterious way, he immediately knows who did it. And then the whole point is this double game, how he will prove it. And this is the clearest case, I claim, of uh, of what Lacan meant by subjects supposed to know. You know, this is it. It's totally non explained how, but Colombo knows. Absolutely no. Because then the whole point is you know, this typically it's already a bad cliche. Uh, Colombo, he comes there, or lady can I ask him, then he goes out, everything we say, oh, sorry, just one more question, whatever, <laughs> all <laughs> those games, no? So, what I'm saying is that uh, uh, they are complex things, they are much more enigmatic, this who done it, novels, and again, in Roger Ackroyd, again, something prohibited happened. You know, you have in detective novels, this figure of, it can be Dr. Watson, or Colonel you know, Hastings, I think, with Poirot, this innocent, stupid, again, the big other, appearance, ordinary guy standing for common sense, who reports on it. And This guy stands for social decency, common manners, so by definition he should be innocent. It can also be not a personal friend, but just someone who stands for common sense community. Now, you know what's the big trick, no, in Roger Ackroyd? That at the end, this guy who is telling all the story turns to be the murderer at the very end. And uh, now there are accusations that she cheated, and so on, Agatha Christie. But here, Pierre Bayard, and it's difficult to find it because the book is sold out, uh, not even reprinted, but if you can get it in some library, or I found it in Boston. I was that once taking a hotel and there was a second-hand bookstore in the basement, and my God, this was one of the miracles. I bought for two dollars for this book. It's not the, it's who killed Roger Maggard. In an extremely convincing way, I start to suspect that Agatha Christie even knew what she was doing. Uh, this guy, Bayard, demonstrates that Roger Ackroyd, the narrator, is not the murderer. That, you have to know the story to get the point that it's his sister and that he loved so much his sister that he sacrificed himself for her. To save her, he took the murder on himself, and so on and so on. It's, but no, it's not just psychology. It's through wonderfully precise, detailed reading of clues. Then he does the same for Sherlock Holmes' The Hound of Baskerville. Absolutely convincing. Absolutely convincing. I even forgot who, but again, the murderer is not the one who is the murderer, and so on. Uh, uh. So this guy, Bayard, back to the point, he did something wonderful. He wrote a... also a uh, book, Plagiarizing, this is where future enter. Plagiarizing, I have even a cha- chapter on it, I think, in my big fat book. Plagiarizing from the future. This would be something like, you know, his reading of David, although his examples are mostly, not all, literally, would be that it, it is as if David, in this moment, with this chaotic background, Preontological, as it were, plagiarized from the modernist future. It is as if he got a sign from the future. He came 100 years too early, which is why, again, T.J. Clark is right in saying that this is the first modernist painting. The second one comes only at the late 19th century, but he was 100 years early. And here, to describe this logic to you, of course, Bayard is not a mysticist, he is not a New Ager who claims there is some atemporal uh, uh, eternal order where future is already written and we can read signs from it. No, no, no. His idea is that uh, we are getting signs from the future all the time. But this future is not, as it were, objective future. This future is a possibility inscribed into our presence. Uh, ca- can I tell you a story which is, again, one of my... F- maybe you know it, I repeat it all it's beautiful. One of my favorite, this temporal paradox science fiction stories. It takes place in United States in 24th, 25th century, a couple of hundred years in the future from now. And the idea is that at that point, a little bit of time travel was possible. It was possible through a machine to go back for a couple of hundred years and to return. Okay, the hero of the story is an art historian who is fascinated by a great mid 20th century American painter. Basically, the model is Jackson Pollock, whom I hate. He's a drunken idiot. My <laughs> favorite is Mark Rothko, but that's another story. <laughs> so he travels back. He wants, my God, to. See, to to meet the guy, no, like Georgie, my God, who wouldn't like to travel back to meet, I don't know, Shakespeare, whatever, no? So he goes back to follow his career of the Pollock figure, when Pollock was still in his eighteen, nineteen a young guy, and it's okay. He ends up in Greenwich Village, mid forties or whatever, and is shocked to discover that this guy is a totally corrupt, drunken idiot. What Pollock was, if I that. <laughs> uh, and that uh, not only this, he is stupid, uh, drunkard, but that he is corrupt, evil. What happens is that the historian, art historian from the future, befriends, becomes friend with him, and this evil guy steals his machine and escapes into the future. <laughs> So now you can guess what happens. The only thing that remains to the art historian is to take over the role of this guy and paint his masterpieces because he knows them from the future. So you know, he himself was, that's what he didn't know, the guy who did it for the future. I mean, I think that the time of creativity is precisely uh, this, this type of, cir- of circular time. You know, uh, I just, okay, but let's go on. So again, let me, now I will do something crazy. I will be, who was here? Was it you who knows about genetics? No. And you, you, you you, are the one who knows about quantum physics and so on. Now, please don't kill me after I finish, just listen to me with great mercy now, put Putin knows, but uh, isn't it that, now, it's, I admit it, I confess to you, all I know is from this, you know, popular introductions and so on and so on. But at least what I get from these popular introductions, it is this idea that in the quantum reality, you can ontologically cheat a little bit. They, they always use for these elements which emerge out of zero and immediately disappear. This idea that something can appear and disappear before it's registered, as it were. By so again, I will not go now into... They even use one of the... Was it Brian Green or who? Uses this banking metaphor, where he says, let's say I want to take a flight to New York, but I don't have money enough on my card. But I discovered that in that other city they have a slow, not yet digitalized system where it will take one day, two, before if I pay with a credit card, the bank will... So I can buy the ticket and then cover it with money before before the bank will notice it. You know, in this sense I can, as it were, (coughs) ontologically cheat. I found, again, this idea tremendously You you, you see what I'm aiming at? That we have some reality which is constituted, registered, but you can, as it were, through these fluctuations ontologically cheat. Like, things can happen which then retroactively are undone. You can, as it were, Brian Greene uses the term, borrow from the future, you know (laughs) Sorry? Reverse causality, where the yeah, yeah. future affects the fact. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, uh, all this, again, I'm not saying anything like to commit myself there. Although I know what Richard, everybody knows what Richard Feynman says now, that nobody understands quantum physics. And I know what this means. Not this stupidity of we are all bluffing. That's something very deep about history of science. The idea is that. Uh, Modern science, it begins with Galileo, no longer can be translated into our ordinary daily experience. Things happen there, it's a radical gap between scientific universe, reality as described there, and our daily experience. And because if you look at early physics, not even science, Aristotle, what is he doing? He's simply describing our daily experience, heavy objects fall, blah, blah. With Galileo, you have the first complication because, according to our spontaneous ontology, things move. A thing moves if you push it. If a thing is left alone, it is at peace. As you know, for Galileo, it is not peace. It is this how you call it, the same speed.
1: Movement. Inertia.
0: Yeah, inertia, yeah, with, which is the zero. It's already a little bit counterintuitive. Then with, with Einstein, then with quantum physics, it's simply a world which we cannot translate into our experience of reality. But with all this said, let me repeat maybe most of you know it, but I find it perfect. Uh, you must know the story, but it's so beautiful to explain what I'm aiming at with this incompleteness of reality and so on. I'm sorry if you know this story that I always use from a guy whom I don't like very much, but here he did something nice. Nicholas Fern very aggressive analytical philosopher, wrote a short introduction to philosophy where it's clear that he hates all continental tradition, but he says something wonderful. Trying to explain the ontological consequences of quantum physics and this uh, 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 uncertainty principle and so on, there he's maybe not precise enough because I did read enough about Niels Bohr and so on to learn that Heisenberg was too stupid, didn't get it. Heisenberg has, you know this, the uncertainty principle like you cannot measure at the same time, I don't know velocity and position. But it's very interesting, I read it now, a polemic between Niels Bohr and uh, Heisenberg. Heisenberg still took it as a simple epistemological limitation. Like, we just cannot measure it. While Bohr told him, no, basically, you are wrong, it is not just that we cannot measure it. Reality in itself is that, is, as it were, incomplete. Okay. here comes
1: Heisenberg accepted it and added it as a footnote. So yeah. the, the thing that basically makes the Uncertainty Principle wrong, yes. as it's, sim- but it's, it's simply... But this is how
0: meteoric treat, you know? Yeah. You know, I, I know a friend of mine who did a similar thing. He made a point, and then I played his Niels Bohr. Okay, it wasn't at such a high level, and criticized that point. What he simply did is that he directly incorporated, because he showed me the unpublished, my point, and she added a footnote, after finishing this text, I learned that my friend Slavoj Gizhe got a similar idea. <laughs> Whatever you know. I love my friend, this is the way we should be Okay, but let's go on. So, uh, Nicolas Fern to explain this, used this beautiful metaphor which touches to my reality of a PC computer game. You must know, you know? Like, you know, in a computer game also, reality is not fully constructed. In the sense that, for example, you see a house in the background where you have all this call of duty, whatever, modern warfare, but if it's not part of the game and often not that you can enter the house, then there is no program for the interior of the house. Because why? Because it's not part of the game. Or you see stars, you see some fuzzy forest trees in the background. These trees, trees, forest, exist only in this fuzzy state. Because, or if, you know, it's not part of the game that you go there. No? And, okay, his in the programmer didn't consider it necessary to fill it in fully. Because you are constrained by the rules of the game how far you can go. Okay, now comes the idea, you must have guessed it. He claimed that... The lesson of quantum physics is a similar one, and he puts it in these wonderful, ironic, theological terms. That, to cut a long story short, uh, God underestimated us, humanity. God thought we are more stupid. This means that in science we will come just to the level of the atom. God thought we will never come to subparticles. So he said, like a computer programmer, fuck it, why should I bother programming in there? So, as it were, we caught God with pens down, you know. (laughs) Fuck you, God, you were lazy there. You didn't do velocity and that all at the same time, you know. uh, It's a wonderful theory, the only thing I have to add here is that the crucial thing to do here is Because, yes, your first approach would have been, but this only works for a theological universe. You need a God. In itself, if you believe that reality exists, really, it must by definition be ontologically complete. My point is no. And that's the terrifying lesson of quantum physics. You know, that we are wrong to think that if you want to be materialist in this simple, stupid sense of reality is out there, we are part of the objective world, that that objective world should be fully ontologically constituted. No, the difficult is to think incompleteness without God, as it were. And here I think, this is why, you know what amuses me? You, the blue guy, the quantum guy, (laughs) yes, you're sorry. Like, uh, am I right or not? My impression is that Although for 30, 40 years, simply, as we all know, quantum physicists didn't bother about so-called ontological problem, like what are ontological... They, there's the standard party line, to put it in Stalinist terms, was, the only thing that matters is that mathematics works, the formulas work. Fuck off, who cares about... But now, the ontological problem is returning, isn't it? They are, again, raising this question, no? Which is why you have all these crazy solutions from intelligent new-agers, but nonetheless new-agers like David Bohm, no? Who wants to save objective reality, but I agree with those who claim that the price he pays is too high. He has to make some ways who go backwards directly retroactive time, or what he goes, then you have these multiple worlds, uh, blah, blah, yes. blah, many worlds, and so on. Like, then, uh, do you believe in, because there is some kind of naturalist example. The problem, of course, is, you know, the idea is that only observation, that we, you have oscillation, only when it's registered by a machine or was, it's decided which one reality is. But, you know what interests me so much, and I've read texts about it. If you ask the very naive question, you know this, you must have read, the so-called collapse of the wave function linked to the observer. Of course, the whole problem is to avoid brutal, stupid uh, theology. You know, to say, this means there must be some observer, and to avoid stupid anthropocentrism, subjectivism, ah, there must be God who observes the entire universe. Okay. Uh, uh, my, is it, are there some attempts, what's the term, I forgot it, to claim that it's almost a matter of quantity with some complexity and there is some kind of immanent collapse, what's the name of this theory? It has a name. They simply try to formulate an immanent mechanism of collapse where you don't need literally an observer, but just the environment, physical itself, serves as observer. I don't know enough about it, but what I want to tell you, can you tell me if you know? How to solve this, no, no, another thing. Because I I try to raise a simple question. Okay, at what moment precisely does the wave function Collapse. And it's interesting how you have multiple theories. Some people claim the moment it is registered by a machine. You know, even before the scientist checks out the machine. But then this is problematic, because then what about the status of the machine a part of reality? Then there are more subjectivist ones who claim no, there must be a conscious observer only at that point. Yes, immediately, I give it right. And then, the third ones are simply, I think, the kind of structuralist ones who claims know its language. It must be registered. Yes?
1: Um, the double-slit experiment yeah. deals with that. Um, <coughs> I know, but... Yeah, and then they, they, when they expanded on it to see whether it was the, the camera or, the, or yeah. our conscious thought, yeah. and they, from what they had... Yeah? come to the conclusion was that it was our actual thought, that it
0: wasn't yeah, the yeah, camera yeah, yeah, yeah. But do you know that wonderful experiment? I have understood it, I claim. What was it? Mm-hmm. The French guy, Alain as, uh, the Aspect, the famous experiment, which basically proved Niels Bohr right against Einstein, no? Mm-hmm. He, uh, he, he did, as it were, exp- uh, experimentally prove that you have to and know the problem is this locality principle, you know. The problem, I mean, okay, I will now do a very primitive description, I hope you know it. The mystery is this one. You know, when you have two, two correlated particles, positive, negative, whatever. What happens to one? It always happens in the opposite direction or whatever to the other. Now, what is succeeded is you do this. You split an element into this couple of times giving you a very common sense a couple of particles, and you do something to one half, in a contingent way, from outside. And then you observe what happened to the other one. They are always correlated. Like, I push you up, the other one goes down. What's the problem? The problem is that you can split these two parts into such a distance from each other that The change in the other one, like I push this one, something happens to this one. But what happens to this one depends on what happens here. But it happens faster than light travels. So you cannot say that through light, which is supposed to be the fastest way anything can move, it wasn't light. So how then were the two connected? The so-called, Einstein insisted on it, locality principle or what is violated. Things can be correlated faster than light, no? This is why I was so interested, wasn't there recently, even in the big news, that somehow they tried to prove that that they were wrong, what? They tried to prove the speed of light faster than speed. Yeah, yeah, but it was uh, cancelled then. It didn't work, no? Yeah. Yeah, 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 because this would have explained it, but again, it didn't work, yeah. So again, uh, <coughs> again, what, uh, what you, I wrote already in that Schelling book and addendum to it, because uh, what fascinates me so much is that the universe described in quantum physics with all its paradoxes, retroactive causality, blah, blah, blah. Because you know better than I'm sure, what is so charming about this double slit experiment. It's not only, that's easy, relatively, that it depends on observation. You know all this joke, if you observe it, it will behave as a particle, if not, it will behave as a wave. The point is that if you observe it afterwards, when the thing already happened, when the particle already passes through the slit, it still retroactively depends on the act of observation. It's... okay, but... uh, Listen, can I ask you something? I refer a lot to that woman, Karen Barra. Now, give me... Kick me in my face. I'm not kidding. Okay, not literally, but... Is she serious or not?
1: She is yes, that's, the ah, that's good news.
0: Because, you know, as you can imagine, I'm very modest here. I write, I speculate about quantum physics, but I just try to understand it, and I'm never sure am I buying bullshit or not. You know what I mean? Like, so I didn't make a mega mistake. She's not, because, you know, she sometimes uses this. She did, Judith Butler, their friends, I know, postmodern <laughs> jargon, you know. So I was afraid, you know. Mm. Ah, so she is... Uh, She's a theoretical particle physicist ah, first, no, because, and a philosopher of science second. Because I don't, okay. She tenured well, in, at Princeton in theoretical particle physics. Ah, so she, yeah. I mean, because, so she has yeah, the for yeah, yeah. Is she lesbian? <laughs> <laughs> this is the worst of my sex. I think you know, so. I <laughs> Sorry? I think so. Uh, that's what I was afraid of. <laughs> uh, once I had a nice conversation with Wendy Brown, the lesbian partner of Judith Butler. She laughed so much, she's used to my. T- I told her, how can you be a beautiful woman, a lesbian? This is such an <laughs> egotist act. By being a lesbian, you render yourself useless. You brutally withdraw yourself from half of humanity, man. Okay, no, you be so brutal, no? But, but again, she's not, you know what I like about her? Listen, this book, what's the title? Meeting the Universe Halfway. I like, even if she is not right, her basic effort, which is to take Bohr very seriously. None of this New Age bullshit, you know. But, and to read him in a materialist way, but without, but again, nonetheless speaking to all the paradoxes without watering it down down in some common sense reality and so on and so on. It's one of the few, I don't know, do you know some better? Really? Okay, but let's go on. I'm crazy, I'm sorry, i admit it. Just to, to conclude this slide. Uh, uh, so, uh, we were at this incompleteness of reality, blah, 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 all that. What I would like to add here is that even in art, I think that cinematic art at its best ca- counts on this effect. Like one of you told me that who is doing a cinema that it's also interesting Kislovsky. Who was that? The name? Who is the traitor who is doing Kislovsky? I'm <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry. Uh, you know a nice, uh, there is a whole school of critics in Poland, some of them, who read Kislovsky as a Gnostic author, but in a good sense, not in this stupid, you know. Uh, mystic, New Age, but Gnostic in the sense, precisely, because you know what is one of the basic Gnostic ideas? Here I like it. To cut a long story short that God is a stupid guy who didn't finish his work of creation. We live in an incomplete world. And in a very good reading of Decalogue, they find traces of this David, David-like incompleteness. For example, at the beginning of his bleakest film, maybe uh, a short film on killing. Mm. Remember how you have some shots like you have the future murderer, the young guy. But I like that film. You know why? Because in a way you are forced to sympathize with the murderer, the taxi driver who is killed. Well, maybe I would have killed him. He is a nasty guy. You know. Okay. Let me go. You remember there are some shots like. Uh, I hope this works. Uh, ah, okay. Like, okay, it's the standard frame. You have here a wall, and here you see the guy leaving the whatever, but this wall is done like that with, ba- although you see it's a wall, but the way you perceive it, it's as if it's like unfinished, you know, in old frescos. Sometimes part of it still is, and the other part is just corroded, just... Uh, just just stains and so on. Although it is reality, you know, you perceive it as, as, it's as if you are looking at the film as an unfinished, corroded, fresh uh, uh, painting, you know, like here is reality, but this is not quite part of reality. And again, I think this is the mega master, master, masterhood of Krzyklovsky. Of this gentle playing with your most elementary sense of reality. Another example that I like to use. Now, okay, I'm almost ashamed to mention it, but two mega guys. Edward Munch, Van Gogh and Van Gogh. Okay, I'm sorry. But now I'm referring to your most elementary phenomenological experience of, let's go to the mega it's incidentally, you know, I cannot resist the temptation of vulgarity. You know that in France, aware that Van Gogh cut his eye, you know? I spoke with some guys, friends of my friends, in Amsterdam from that Van Gogh museum, and told them, can you fake it and find an old eye, uh, 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 sorry, here yeah. yeah. and claim this is Van Gogh's original here and so <laughs> on, Ooh, more tourism and so on. <laughs> I I like this. Okay, Mm -hmm. let's go. Uh, uh, Just try to visualize a late painting that, the crazy one, you know, it's not the very late one, but when he was in the south of France, you remember those typical uh, blue sky, sun, and some field of corn, whatever. And this incredible intensity of color, which as it were, makes you feel some strange heaviness, thickness, density of what shouldn't, like clouds, even the sky is no longer experienced, the sky is no longer experienced as just vast light emptiness, but something dense, heavy. And my point is what? Try to locate. I claim this is a fact. Okay, maybe I'm an idiot, who knows, but I'm not alone here. That you have this effect of, as it were, it's a kind of a weird material heaviness that you experience as part of objects, but at what level do we experience, that's what I'm asking you, this heaviness. It's not it's not the heaviness of the object depicted in a realistic way. I think, and I think this is the absolute genius of Van Gogh. How? He paints something light, fragile, but, you know, the very mode of painting undermines it. So it's not the depicted object, but it's also not, that's crucial, the immediate materiality of the painting. There is nothing heavy, there is some spectral in between materiality. You feel, and I claim that this is, it's the same, if you don't believe me, look at it, some of uh, wonderful, uh, I'm very old romantic here, I'm sorry to tell you, I like, I like uh, Edward Monk. no? I like that uh, freaky guy, and if you are civilized, you should buy it. It's the most precious thing in my home. You know that we have some philosopher's store or what in the United States, which are selling obscenity. I met them, I You can buy, you know, from screen, uh, the, no? You can buy to blow it up, you get the whole figure like that, and all my friends, Fred Jameson, and let go? I even have more. I have a pillow with that guy on, and then, when you put your hand on there, you get this. <laughs> <laughs> this is American culture. <laughs> so let me go on. Uh, uh, back to it. Uh, this, uh, if you look at some of his paintings, there, what I'm trying to retrace is precisely this kind of a grey, obscene, preontological materiality, a spectral one. Uh, my God, I would even like. I don't have it, I don't have it here to bring to to if you now I will speak like a Californian guy to share the experience with you. You know, like if you feel the same, if you look at some of these paintings, even in that screen, you know how if you look at how the earth before in front of that bridge or the sky, it's the same massive heaviness, it's as if the stuff there resists being simply part of transparent realistic depiction. And if you have some other paintings like a couple of women at night through a lake, you can always get this as if some kind of obscene preontological stains are resisting. And I think that you even get direct proofs of this. Uh, I, you know where? Uh, Okay, uh, that the figure of the, the screaming boy, you know, you know where you find him also. You know his famous painting, is it Madonna or what, of Munch uh, uh, torso, beautiful woman? But you remember what you have then? It's really that's how I think uh, he should be read. Okay, you have painting and on within the painting this all is painted. It's a kind of a double frame. Here you have the woman torso and here you have a kind of a slimy disgusting sphere and in it a kind of a monster totally similar to the guy who is screaming in the scream is floating here surrounded by sperms and so on. And you know when you find the last figure of this obscene guy. Uh, did you notice the same weird figure of a boy in some crucial, Ingmar Bergman films? Like, there is a boy touching the screen at the beginning of Persona, which I hate, much better example, Silence, and so on. But what I want to say is that, and now let make me a jump, maybe one of the best scenes from Hitchcock's Vertigo. It's a minor scene, sometimes, so that the movie fits two hours and you don't have to come <coughs> to the In United, they even leave it out. About a quarter of an hour into Vertigo, you remember when Scotty follows Madeleine, they, she goes to a florist. Mm. That florist also no longer exists. yeah, it's horrible. Okay, and then you have, this is Hitchcock at his best, one of the weirdest shots. She, she, Madeleine, enters through the main entrance, she enters to a back entrance, and she looks, you have then, you have something like this. You have here a big mirror. That's the key shot. You see her, it's her point of view shot. She looks at herself, the beautiful Madeleine, in the mirror. Then you have here a crack, Here it's just another nearer wall, whatever. And here you can see just his eye and so on, Scotty staring at her. The wonder of this scene is that, although although from the naive realist standpoint, the only real part is this, what you see here is just her image. The way you experience it is that we are here in normal reality, And it's as if, you know, this idea that you find in horror movies, which is why I like that. Stephen King is here very deep, don't don't underestimate him. That it's always on the border between inside and outside, like in thick walls, in between, neither inside nor outside of a house. Trolls, evil trolls, spirits are there, something. The idea being that there is... Another, precisely the same year, spectral proto-reality, and from there, he becomes a kind of a spectral entity, pure gaze looking at her. It's a wonderful, it's a wonderful shot. Listen, fuck life, it's 11.30. <laughs> <laughs> we go on in the afternoon, I'm sorry. I just, you know what I will do? I will try it with maybe slaves will. We are in decadent times, slaves want freedom. I know what's the tragedy. I try to be a master, but I will start to serve my slaves and so on, you know, it's decadence. (laughs) Seriously, because, you know, I talk about this, but this is bullshit. Like, it would be so much more effective just to show this couple of things to you, you no? Because then, I'm not totally confused, I may appear, because from all of this, you can imagine what my my point would have been, answering you, subject, that... uh, in order to have the effect of subject, you need this spectral space and non-all of reality and so on and so on. You know that? I mean, okay, a little bit on this in the afternoon. Life is cheap. I talk too much. Again, you know? But I already repeated with you the old joke. You, know? you at least know when people call me Fidel. You know? Speak to words like Fidel castro, you know? yeah.